Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It's the Wonky Show. We're talking apprenticeships, levy, research, culture, and industrial strategy. It's all coming up. It is really this sort of, you know, what big business wants, stop them wasting their levy spending, labourers appeal to business rather than labourers appeal to, you know, parents who are, and, and voters who, who don't like universities so much. Welcome to The Wonky Show, your weekly way into this week's higher education, news, policy and analysis. I'm Wonky's Editor-in-Chief, Mark Leach, and joining me to survey the perimeters of HE policy this week are three brilliant guests as always. In Northampton, it's Sean Waring, Deputy Vice-Chancellor at the University of Northampton. Sean, your highlight of the week, please. Morning, Mark. Um, probably getting um, external partners in to sign our Northamptonshire Anchor Charter, um, where we're, we're trying to work together to improve Northamptonshire as a place to live, thrive, study, work and visit. And on campus is Ashley Strawsmith, Student Voice Manager at the University of Nottingham Students Union. Ashley, your hire to the week, please. Hey, good morning. Uh, so, outside of coming back from Disneyland Paris Pride, um, the key highlight for me this week is launching the new Academic Reps Audit Tool we've been working on for a while to help unions... Um, and universities understand how their rep systems work. And in Oxford, it's Michael Salmon, Wonky's news editor. Michael, your heart of the week, please. Um, I think it's just sun is shining, some lovely flowers come out in my garden, and uh, yeah, things, things are good. So, we start the week with Labour and what it's saying about the apprenticeship levy. Michael, talk us through it. Yeah, so we got a bit more detail this week about Labour's plans um, to turn the apprenticeship levy into what they're calling a growth and skills levy. They announced this, I think, around party conference time last September. Um, and But it's been a bit of a sort of, you know, a policy soundbite as opposed to one with much detail on. Um, you know, their big idea is that firms will be allowed to spend up to 50% of their levy contributions on non-apprenticeship um, training, like sort of modular courses, what they're called functional skills courses, um, overseen by a new body that will be called Skills England. Um, and they'll just be 50% of the levy um, ring fenced for apprenticeships. You know, we've had Keir Starmer at Prime Minister's question saying businesses are crying out for more flexibility in the levy. So it's seen as a kind of pro business, CBI endorsed back when that was a, you know, something to aspire to. Um, you know, it's that sort of policy, especially aimed at big businesses, which were at least previously were struggling to spend all of their levy funds um you know and the question has been a little bit okay so what's going to happen to the smaller businesses the smes which um you know don't pay the levy traditionally their apprenticeships have been funded by you know what's left over from the big businesses what they haven't managed to spend um and so this week, uh, Labour's Toby Perkins, who's the Shadow Minister for Skills and Further Education, he sort of made clear at, in a speech at a conference that Labour's plans are not going to reduce the budget available to non-levy paying companies, so small businesses, um, you know, not going to stop them from being able to 
have funding for apprenticeships um, because you know okay just to sort of go back in a circle then so if bigger companies are spending more on sort of short courses and training there'd be less left over from to go to small businesses but toby perkins has said labor is going to make you know and this is quite interesting in itself because you don't see these too often at the moment an additional spending commitment and they're going to safeguard sme apprenticeships you know and this this could end up being quite a substantial commitment is i don't you know it's not something where labor look to have particularly costed it especially sort of longer term they also want to drive up the numbers of SMEs doing apprenticeships so it's probably one to keep an eye on as they actually you know see what the shadow chancellor and her team start thinking about this this commitment because you know it could be into the you know perhaps in the order of a billion pounds maybe I've seen people suggesting uh, you know hard to tell but um, yeah it's sort of interesting also because that that money is being spent on that and not in other aspects of tertiary education as well you would think so yeah this is fascinating isn't it sean i think you know because given we've given we've had previously kind of policy making by vibes for labor and opposition because they, they don't want to spend money this is interesting isn't it because it kind of points to a direction of travel and the sorts of things they might prioritize and i think that is interesting as well as the actual policy itself right i think that's right so um, first of all, I think I, I welcome a, a review of the apprenticeship levy. I think it's a great idea in practice. I think operationalising has been very difficult and, and it hasn't delivered the benefits. I think everybody can see are there. You know, the idea of um, higher education um, where the, you know, the cost is picked up by employers is great. Um, that students leave without, you know, students leave with a degree without debt is great. The integration with industry is great, but operationalising has been... Um, difficult for two reasons. I think it's quite cumbersome. There's a lot of players involved, so just bringing them to the table is difficult. Getting the um, the employers and the um, a, uh, FE funding element and Ofsted um, with universities and the students all being you know players in it is really difficult to to harmonise. That's one thing. Um, it's difficult to make it cost effective because actually with more elements it costs more. But the other thing has been it's been very difficult to get employers to agree on standards for apprenticeships um, that map on to what students want to do. And, and so it's, it's just been hard to operationalise, which is not at all to say that the principle isn't a great idea. So I think coming back to it is a good idea. But I still think, and we can see this with the lifelong loan entitlement, it's still going to be very difficult to to operationalise it. I know that's it's a cliche to say the devil's in the detail, but I think that's exactly where we are. And actually, where, where would you prioritise this on? If you know, if you had a billion pounds to spend on on education <laughs> skills, where would you where would you prioritise this? So I, I think for me, I think it is important to put investment into apprenticeships, and I think that that would be a significant chunk of that. As as someone who um, didn't come from a family who who went to higher education full-time and and it was a kind of unique myself I think having a range of opportunities to get into higher education outside of your three-year undergrad massive loans I think is really important um I think the the aspect kind of slightly going back to what Sean's saying around the the implementation I think it's incredibly difficult for SMEs small medium enterprises to get involved in degree apprenticeships from my experience at Warwick where we have a lot of big companies um, creating and um, doing a degree apprenticeship work, um, we didn't see really any small or medium enterprises doing it because it was very industry-led and they needed a lot of money to get the university to be able to be on board and create that work because they needed a substantial amount of students to start those courses. Um, but then if 
those industries are big enough, could they just go down the route of Dyson and have their own um, their own uh, office for students um, approved um, degree awarding apprenticeship school? Um, and I think that actually this could we could see more of that actually rather than things being incorporated into universities. I mean, Michael, it, it polls well, doesn't it? I mean, apprenticeships, this is why Labour keeps coming back to it. It's why actually, I mean, the Conservatives talk about, when they talk about skills, you know, there's always lines about apprenticeships in there. Um, people like apprenticeships. People like to think they would do one or they would recommend that their kids do one, whether or not the, they do or the demand's there or the partners with business are there is, is, or, or the funding's there is, is, is this kind of separate matter, isn't it? But do you think we can expect to see more of this kind of thing? Yeah, in the sense that, as you say, it, it polls well, it's politically popular. It does feel a bit like there's probably all kinds of, you know, things to be uncovered within the apprenticeship system. We, we just saw last week, for example, in the student academic experience survey that student satisfaction is quite poor, really, compared to, compared to regular university study. You know, the dropout rate is still very bad, you know, but while it still is the sort of political flavour of the month, especially at DfE, but also for Labour, you know, I, I, I imagine we'll get continued emphasis on it i mean I, I would just sort of say this isn't really labor saying they're going to do more spending on apprenticeships more this is they're going to sort of make up for the funding that will be lost in and really what they're putting money into here is on sort of modular courses skills courses for big businesses um which you know is and really here they're just trying to maintain parity and to stop the number of apprenticeships from falling. They've also said they're going to do other things all around sort of reducing burden um, and making it all a bit more simple. It's not clear yet whether this new body, Skills England, is going to re replace the, the Institute for Apprentices and Technical Education, but it probably will, you, you would think. Um, you know, so they are doing other moves. But th this money is really, it, you know, goes back to a bit what Sean said about the LLE. It's all about sort of, you know, short courses, um, you know, for, for probably for current employee and uh, current employees rather than sort of young students. It is really this sort of, you know, what big business wants, stop them wasting their levy spending, Labour's appeal to business rather than Labour's appeal to, you know, parents who are and, and voters who, who don't like universities so much. Mark, to come back in on your question on, um, you know, where could we be spending that money? I think one of the options would be, and this does pop up um, in, in the speech that we're talking about, um, the the, uh, the Toby Perkins speech, uh, is careers, education, information, advice and guidance from primary schools onwards, because that's an area that has just dwindled and dwindled away. And I think setting um, routes for for children from very early on into areas where um, there is work, there is productivity, there are, you know, a valuable and fulfilling jobs to be done is really important. I think in the absence of that, I think we have to go upstream of the problem, basically. And I think that is into that very early um, careers, education, information, advice and guidance. That would be one of the things to do with it and making sure that that continues throughout and is focused on the areas where there's going to be long term productivity for the, for, the, for the country so that there's that generation of wealth which is actually going to pay for all of these things ultimately because if that productivity is dwindling it's harder and harder and harder to invest um, in education and public services which is I think where we are at the moment. Let's see who's been blogging for us this week. This is Joshua Thorpe, and this week I'm blogging about the real risk of generative AI, a, sort of a different take on the risks of AI. And I think that 
kind of centers around a crisis of knowledge, or at least a potential crisis of knowledge, and how that might be tied to our identities in higher education. And for students, this concerns me especially because I think students will have a difficult time figuring out what their identity is and what their role is as producers of knowledge and even as consumers of knowledge, which is pretty much all of university. So that can be very disorienting. So with all this in mind, then, the article makes an argument for more criticality and caution in our discussions and integration of AI tools in higher education. How can we do this more cautiously and more humanely as the world around us is changing so quickly? Now, the debate over reforms to the REF are raging. Ashley, walk us through them. Yes, so Research Action Framework um, has discussed around increasing weighting given to people, culture and environment, which will now be worth 25% um, in, uh, in 2028, up from 15% in 2021 when this was just called environment, uh, which is a little bit of controversy, a little bit of arguments taking place. I think the first argument taking place is really around whether EDI should get a look in when we're assessing research excellence. Um, the funding councils who have put together the proposals and the initial decisions in the future research assessment program um, suggest that it should, um, though consultations will follow. Um, I think it's a really interesting debate. Um, and we're also seeing a wider debate around um, should we be actually assessing or incentivize good research culture or just be focusing on what research outputs um, and the quality of those outputs when it comes to how funding gets allocated. Um, and some really great articles on Wonky this week uh, by Elizabeth Gadd and James Coe, who have supported the idea of using REF to improve research culture, uh, though the former cautions that we need to avoid creating a my research culture is better than yours competition, especially given the massive disparity in resources between institutions. Michael, we, we covered this on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, didn't we, when, the, in, when it was all announced. Um, but we recorded on the day that um, the direction of travel was set. And there's been a really interesting kind of national conversation started in the wake of that hasn't there i mean le- least generously uh commentators on the right describing it as the ref gone woke um but there are some you know there is a, there is a legitimate challenge there isn't there about how public money is spent and what are we actually trying to achieve by me- measuring research yeah, there is. And I, I mean, uh, one of the things that struck me most about when, when the Future Research Assessment Programme reported was just how independent of government it really felt. You know, we got, we got all the various sector bodies writing to us, you know, saying, you know, if, if you're do- covering this tomorrow, here's our comment. We think it's pretty good. We're happy with it. You know, um, universities as organisations generally, I think, were quite happy. It was a very sort of collaborative endeavour with UKRI, with a panel, with the sector, and not with, you know, the government, with the Department for Science, Innovation and Technology. I mean, they maybe mentioned it in passing but uh, you know in in a, in a letter they wrote to research england but it really barely weighed in on it it's really interesting to think of the difference between that state of affairs and nine months ago when jacob reese mogg was the business secretary who would have been responsible for ukri and you know was already talking to the telegraph about going through ukri's budget line by line you know getting rid of the woke stuff and it is it's it's I mean, it's come at the right time politically, but the flip side of that is you think, well, where could we be in a year? You know, if if there is a a further reshuffle, 
I mean, you know, potentially, um, where could we be in three years? Say, if Labour is in power and suddenly all this money that's spent on research becomes a sort of tabloid and right-wing paper line of attack, and you know, and Suella Braverman's the you know it, the opposition number at PMQs, and she's you know, so it, it is interesting, kind of how this issue sort of within the sector within a, for a few people became a bit of a big deal about you know the edi question and the culture question um but also i thought it was interesting how it didn't get traction beyond the sector and generally the sector you know feels sort of quite happy with with the ref mm. fascinating sean do you, do you do you think this this takes us forward sufficiently um i think a lot of the opposition is very short term so i think the uh, i'm not sure actually it looks long enough um, and, and more and joined up enough actually for me at this point but I think we're getting there but to take Ashley's point about you know a further reshuffle um, we've had seven secretaries of state for education in the last seven years um, and I think there's been a real lack of continuity and one of the big issues for me for research is that we set a foundation um, for for future success and that's really long term these are you know we we developed the, the technicians and the discovery research which actually um, drives the future of innovation in the country and so that's a really long-term plan and so I really welcome first of all EDI at the heart of that because otherwise look at all the talents and skills we're losing by you know the number of people who don't come forward and I know we all know the statistics on profs but um, about seven percent sorry 0.7 percent of professors are black and um, about 0.1% are black women. And that means a massive loss of um, talent. And that talent, that you know, that plays out long term. This is not just a, um, a snapshot of where research is at a particular point in time. Universities are about um, the future of individuals and the future of society. And I think we need that long term planning. So it, absolutely, we need to have that people, culture and environment in there. Hmm. I love Michael's theory that because the sort of leadership vacuum in in Whitehall right now, the, the kind of the Wokerati managed to get a bunch of stuff out of the door that would have absolutely had a red line put through it by, by people like Ian Mansfield when, when he was there. Um, and, and it kind of explains, I think, why there's been a bit of a backlash from uh, from those quarters. But um, actually, I, I, back to back to what you're saying about about the kind of the broader cultural points. Is there going to be you know, is 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 it going to also be a kind of uh, kinder, gentler ref, as as some have described it, or you know, is the nature of of measuring research in this way always inevitably going to be a bit of a uh, a zero sum game? I don't think it's to be kinder and gentler. I, I think I think this is important to have. I think that um, having EDI um, involved and this idea of culture involved in research um excellence i think is just a natural understanding from my perspective like when we have more diversity within research we get better research because we have more different perspectives putting out things and actually as um as higher education who has a significant significant influence on industry um we should be using that for good um, i know that was a, a bit of a misquote of uncle ben's great power great responsibility speech but um I, I do really feel that as as someone who would love the opportunity to go and do research but haven't been able to do that due to um personal and sector barriers i i think that the more that we focus on that the better research we're going to get out anyway i i don't think it's mutually exclusive i think it Touch. actually totally that. agree with that point ashley i just want to say i completely agree with that it will be better research with more diversity and i mean i mean from your perspective and in, in your institution do you think it's going to help 
um, the broader cultural points about about research? Um, I think in the short term, it'd be really hard to fund for institutions like us, but I do think it's the right way to go. So, um, you know, I think it, it's we need to think through what that will mean to us. It's it's really hard in our part of the sector to put that sort of long-term funding in place, um, but we are completely committed to that diversity and we've got schemes to produce that. And I think that is the that is where our good research will come from. It'll come from putting those um, uh, policies and practices in place. Mm. But what's the temperature more generally in in, in the university? Are people do, does this people does this make people dread the ref a little bit less? I'm finding that really hard to answer actually because I think I think um, people probably individual academics are you know focused on their own research areas and their own developments i'm not sure that this will really shape their view of it i think it probably does shape our view at a, you know a policy level within the institution um but I, I think we've been going this way for a while we've been trying to set in place a culture that will underpin you know long-term positive research activity uh, right across the diversity of our staff and we're obviously trying to get our staff body um, to more reflect our student body, which is you know currently more diverse than our staff body. So really seeing um, research, PhD research as a pipeline into um, our future researchers. So we've, we've already had structures in place that are trying to um, diversify um, the, the students who go from our undergraduate body into our, our research student body and therefore into our academic staff and up the pipeline to professor. So we've been working on this for a while. So I would see this as supporting our direction of travel. I do think there is going to be some worries, though, within the sector. I think especially um, within Russell groups and certain areas like STEM, which have been able to, um, that ha- do not have as much diversity, but being able to rank really high in ref. I think there is definitely going to be a worry about, okay, well, now this is worth 25%. Now this culture stuff is worth so much more. Um, I think there is going to be a lot of scrambling over the next few years to try and see how they can boost things quickly especially um in those areas that have lacked diversity but because it's not been or lacked kind of that culture and diversity work but because it hasn't been high up on the refs agenda um it means that um they've been able to kind of get away with it for want of a better term well we have published an absolute amount of stuff about this on the site so if you want to dig into some of these debates uh, you can and there's a consultation isn't there michael yeah it's all under consultation at the moment this is just the initial decisions so it's you know, to some extent, it's anyone's game, but it does it does feel at the moment like um, you know, there's a sort of broad broad endorsement of of what um, Research England and the other funding bodies are trying to do. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I just wanted to say uh, to, to endorse the um, the two great blogs on the wonky site, uh, the Elizabeth Gadwin and the James Coe. But I was really excited when I got to the James Coe one to see what I'm pretty sure is a picture of Inverary. So um, it's it's a boat on a beach, and I'm thinking I think that's Inverary. So I think everyone should have a look at that because um, it was also a highlight of my week to be reminded of a very pleasant holiday there. And now a word from our sponsor, that's me, uh, with some information about our exciting festival. The Festival of Higher Education is coming. This November, Wonky and the University of London will welcome you to Senate House for two amazing days of one-to-one conversations with HE leaders, set-piece debates and insights from journalists, policymakers and experts. You'll hear from speakers inside and outside the sector, take part in amazing interactive sessions, learn about new research, data and ideas, and meet colleagues old and new. All equipping you with the fresh thinking and insights ready to take back and share with your universities and teams. It's going to be an unmissable event for anyone with an interest in the future of UK higher education. That's 7th and 8th of November in London. Early bird tickets are available only until the end of June, so do hurry if you want to take advantage of these. 
Find out more and book your tickets at thefestivalofhe.com or follow the links from Wonky. We can't wait to see you in November. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Now, former University of Science Minister David Willits has weighed back into debate about industrial strategy and science. John, walk us through it. Uh, yes, so David Willits has followed up uh, in revisiting his eight great technologies pamphlet uh, a decade on. So he identified eight uh, powerful world-changing technologies that he argued the government should invest in. And he saw these as drivers of ways that we'd be working um, and solving global problems. So he was arguing that it was imperative that do we, we develop an infrastructure in the UK um, to, to, to support innovation in these technologies So um, for, for prosperity and, and for thriving. So he'd identify things like AI, um, robotics, genomics, agri-science, agri nanotechnology. So what you could see actually is the work that he's doing um, in this as identifying the root cause of not enough cash into public services and higher education, that, that um, the generation of prosperity is actually what underpins um, the, the, the work of higher education. A lot of the problems we're seeing at the moment and um, in terms of um, industrial action as well. There simply isn't the uh, the funding to support the work that we want to do at the moment. So that underlying prosperity is really key, I think. Uh, he does talk about universities being uh, where a lot of the crucial research happens, that they train researchers and technicians. Um, and he's also really critical that no one has overall view of funding and performance of our universities, which he sees as a key national asset. Asset, So I think that's really positive. It's very critical of splitting agendas between government, government departments, where one department pushes forward, another one holds back. Uh, and he includes the OFS in the, the handbrake departments, sees it as heavily interventionist. Um, and what he's... And what he suggests is that universities should sit in the new Department of Science, Innovation, Technology with a focus on innovation. So I think that's really positive. And then the question comes, as we were talking about earlier on the podcast, uh, what happens to the parts of education that might not fit in there, like FE? So I think the big challenge is really, um, do areas like FE and apprenticeships sit with university education? Um, does university education sit with science, innovation, technology? Um, so I, th I think there's lots to welcome here and it's a, really recommend it's a very well written, engaging um, and, and charming paper. Actually, he, he says that he himself um, didn't, doesn't feel he comes from a technology background, had to have it explained to him very patiently. But he does see a lack of um, 
technology education is a problem in government that makes us a bit phobic about it as a, as a, as a, in the UK. Uh, and he does also criticise early division at 16 um, into science or arts as part of a problem. He wants um, post-16 education to allow people uh, to have a much broader um, base across uh, science and art subjects, which again, I think is to be welcomed. This, um, Michael, this question about, you know, whether universities should, should sit in um, uh, DSIT or, or DFE, I mean, it's one of those kind of like, yes, obviously it should be in DSIT, next please, right? I mean, is there any, you know, there's a, is, is there even a debate to be had about that? Yeah, I guess it's a sort of mechanics question, like how would that actually work? Like would then DSIT would then have responsibility for the Office for Students? How's that going to fit in with the LLE? I mean, is the LLE, you know, the moment that is the funding model, you know, it does that fully close the door on the idea of just universities going to DSIT? And, you know, as China said, I think there's an interesting question about, you know, the whole of the tertiary system system going back into a sort of, you know, innovation and skills and, and science sort of um, department, which everybody would love. Um, as you know, I think, and I think especially at the moment, okay, DC is a very new department. Um, you know, they're doing some things very well in terms of, you know, lots of sort of posts on Twitter and th that kind of thing, but it is really new and, and, and it's still being set up. Lots of the civil servants, I think are still, you know, in the wrong building and all this sort of thing. Um, but I think, you know, what people see in, in the sector when they look at, uh, at, uh, you know, DSIT, but even Bayes to some extent, is that these are departments that sort of take pride in and celebrate the work that they fund and are responsible for. And I think we would all agree that pretty much, you know, sort of to 90% at least, the Department for Education just doesn't do this across its whole sector. I mean, it loves its apprenticeships, as we've talked about. There's, you know, it, like, it likes doing well in the PISA league tables, but even for schools, it do, it's not really celebrating them, is it? And, you know, so people are very keen on this idea that it would be, you know, first of all, as I said before, more hands-off. If we look at how, you know, the development of the REF, it's, it's not really been too meddled in with government. And also it would be more sort of, um, you know, welcoming and, and sort of celebratory, you know, whether these things would happen in practice, who, who knows, because it would be a really fundamental change to, you know, the, the, the media attention that, that this government department gets and, and, and all kinds of different things. But, you know, it's, it's one of those nice sort of championship manager style, you know, thought experiments about how you would organise government if it was up to you. I'm quite interested to know what your thoughts are, Mark, although I think you've pretty much made them clear already. <laughs> there's, a, there's, a, there's a good policy wonk term, absorptive capacity which is is about if, if you want to turn you know science technology innovation all of that into actual um productivity you know in 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 places uh and in good you know good properly paying jobs um then you need to have a slightly more uh you know joined up system which which starts you know starts with skills you know it doesn't it doesn't necessarily end with higher education but but kind of links all those all those things up and i think it feels like the missing piece of the puzzle for this sort of much smarter type of industrial strategy i mean we can move the pieces around um the uh, uh whitehall but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to give us that that link between this, you know, high amount of investment in science innovation to, as I say, good jobs for people, better quality of life, and um, a more productive economy on 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 the other end. And I'm I'm just thinking. I mean, actually, I, I wonder if you think um, um, there is a case that the sector, a better or stronger case, the sector could make about its role in in that wider loop, 
as we head into a general election and, and what should that be? I completely agree. I definitely think that the, the sector and universities individually and a collective should be showing their kind of force and, and, and ability to boost economic growth. Um, I think specifically when it comes to these aspects um, around kind of the industrial strategy and, and these eight great technologies, um, I think it is trying to get the universities kind of like what we talked about earlier about linking back with industry I, I think it's that aspect of how are we showing that um that journey um how are we showing it from um starting a undergraduate degree to research to that implementing um key industry within the uk and within the world um and i think that universities because of their um, choppy relationship with 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 the government um, over the past ten years at least. Um, I think there is a there is an apprehension to put their head above the parapet a little bit. Um, where actually, if they did that, I think there would be much more sympathy when it comes to um, issues that universities and higher education is facing from the general population. Um, well, I agree with um, Ashley and Michael's points. I think um, in terms of the things we've been talking about today, they are all connected up. They do all fit within a, an overall arc an overarching industrial strategy. We do need to support top-level research and innovation. We also need to talk um, to support a workforce um, to, to, to enable that. Um, and there are both economic advantages, but also, of course, social advantages in terms of um, education leading to work that, that leads to people having, um, you know, prosperous and secure lives and generating the prosperity that feeds back into to education, social services. So I, I agree with the points that um, Michael Ashley and you've made about it all connecting up. And I guess, Michael, perversely, there's, there's probably more more kind of receptive ears in Labour right now for this sort of um you know it's it's sort of close to that their sort of mission led approach isn't it then then the, the conservative party which is seems to me a bit more focused on you know the next election and uh staving off disaster yeah i mean it's n- certainly not that something that's going to happen under this conservative government that is just sort of you know as you say really uh, in the last throes of its legislative agenda and unlikely to be doing any big changes like this, um, which also, you know, wouldn't play to its base. But for Labour, you know, I I imagine and I hope and I would recommend that the sector is behind the scenes, you know, as much as there is a sort of HE policy apparatus in Labour yet, which, uh, you know, if there is, it's not very big, but, um, you know, they they don't have all their sort of teams and manifesto writing going on um, on a grand scale yet. But I would think the sector should be um, you know, dropping a few hints about this, s- suggesting a little bit. I mean, at the moment, what we can do is sort of read the runes a bit, you know, to, to do we have any signals coming out of Labour that they might do this? I mean, I think, so on the one hand, they they ha- still have a shadow higher education minister, Matt Weston, and a separate FE and skills minister, Toby Perkins, who we've mentioned earlier. I mean, uh, unlike in, in the Conservative government. So that is sort of suggestive that they might be thinking that these are sort of two separate areas. On the other hand, they still don't have a shadow um, DSIT minister secretary. You know, there's no right, science secretary, technology secretary on their benches. You know, it, the, the re- this, this machinery of government change was back in, I think, the b- very beginning of March, and they 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 haven't got anyone in place, sort of, in the opposition brief for there. There's it was rumoured, in fact, this week that it might be Lucy Powell, who's currently shadow culture secretary, um, but you know, maybe not until. A, a reshuffle around conference sort of time in, in the autumn. So, 
you know, from that side, we could say it doesn't seem to be a big priority for, for Labour. And there's not an obvious person who the sector should be talking to and going, oh, do you fancy adding universities to your area of responsibility? Um, yeah, so so hard to know. But I, I you know, I imagine if this were ever going to happen, it would be yeah, under a future Labour government. Mm-hmm. I, I am shocked, actually, how little joined up the policies are. So, um, in in probably three dimensions. So, one is how we how we link excellence and skills. So, so the um, the research innovation and and the base and you know general skills across the population. So that's one. Another is um, the, the the total educational journey from. Um, you know, pro- early years, primary, right the way through to to HE and and you know the and um, post sixteen and, and HE, and then the third bit. I'm re- I was really shocked uh, looking at the where, where it mentions England and where it doesn't. I think there's absolute confusion about what policies apply across England, Wales, and Scotland, um, and where they don't, and that has huge impact for where for where students study, for how staff travel. Um, you know, d- does the lifelong learning entitlement follow you if you're an English student going to a university in Scotland and the the questions there are enormous and it's very divisive across the country and then that exacerbates um, uh, disparities in prosperity across the country too so I think the first step would be to have a vision that just connected up um, early years education right through to HE excellence with um, the skills that the whole population needs and then took a holistic view across England, Scotland and Wales. So that's about it for this week. Remember to dig a bit deeper into anything we discussed today, you'll find links in the show notes on wonky.com. Don't forget you can get later show automatically when it's out. Just search for The Wonky Show wherever you get your podcasts. And to find out about how we can keep you and your organisation ahead of everything that's going on in UKHE, do head to the website to find out more about our subscriptions. So thanks very much to Sean, Michael and Ashley. We'll be back next week. Jim will be here. In the meantime, stay wonky. Stay wonky.